0: Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. This is John Fitzgerald, and welcome to another episode of Continuum, the IBC podcast. Our guest today, very, very intriguing person from, as I say, the other side of the pond, from Prague, the Czech Republic, Ulrich Burich. Orch, good afternoon for you, good morning for me. Welcome to Continuum, we're looking forward to the conversation today.
1: Thank you for the invitation, John, my pleasure.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome, more than welcome. So first, can, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, where did you grow up? Uh, t- tell us about kind of the early stages for you before you went to university.
1: I grew up in the middle of uh, Czech Republic, well, back then when I was saying still Czechoslovakia, so in the middle of Europe uh this was at a time uh, of big changes uh, in this part of the world so uh, i was born in what was a communist country uh but when i was ten, uh, we had uh, the so-called Velvet revolution and suddenly everything changed uh which being ten we don't notice that much but certainly impacted my life ever since uh, also in the way that i could actually and study uh, at notre dame uh something that my parents could never dream of so i was born in the middle of czech republic uh, uh two family of uh, uh three uh children so i have two younger brothers um i went to typical czech grammar school secondary school and then what is called the gymnasium uh essentially a high school but a high school thing in uh, central europe are a bit different than what you are most people are used to in the u.s in that it's lots of memorize memorize read sorts of books and memorize them and what the teachers tell you uh and that was actually the first time when i sort of realized this is not necessarily what i like and want uh and i was fortunate enough to have um and that was also one of the consequences of the big changes uh after 1989 in czechoslovakia uh to have an uh, uh old lady coming from the u.s to teach english conversations at this high school and uh, once uh, she basically uh, told us in the class that there is an opportunity to apply for a um, scholarship to go for one year exchange at a high school in the U.S. Uh, and I must admit that was not something that I immediately jumped on even though I knew pretty much nothing about the U.S. about my English, uh, la- language skills at that I were very poor uh, but she was really great at um, she helped me and also a couple other classmates to write the application, or to write something like a motivation essay. Back then in my country, we didn't know what that is. So uh, this was probably one of the first formative experiences. And also the time when I, for the first time when I was 15, ended up in the U.S. Out in the U.S. education system. And that was, I think, a big game changer, at least for me. Um, so, otherwise, yeah, very happy childhood in the middle of of Europe, uh, but um, relatively early on, I left Czech Republic for several adventures in the U.S.
0: So, or back when you were fifteen, you said you came to the U.S. Where did you go when you were at that point? Where did you come to in the U.S.?
1: I came to a boarding school uh, in Delaware. Uh, it's the boarding school is called St. Andrews. The first thing I received. Uh, from the school when I won uh, the scholarship, that was through an um, uh, Open Society Fund, uh, funded by George Soros, um, but then uh, basically I was hosted at this, uh at this boarding school. And uh, the first thing that they told me that uh, I can do if I want to learn a bit more about the school was to watch the movie Dead Solid Society with Michael Williams. Um, and that's a great movie, but not necessarily if you want to go to that school and this is the first thing you learn about at school. So I was I was really a bit shocked. Uh, I went to public school in Czech Republic. Again, it was very different teaching style. So everything was a big shock. But uh, it was a great experience. Uh, I had to go back. That was part of the scholarship deal. Uh, and I will return after one year. Uh, so at the end of the year, I didn't want to go back. But uh, yes, it was a complete shock uh, when I was 15 to end up at that boarding school.
0: So you, you went a year in the U.S. to school, went back to Czech Republic, and then when did you, you came back to the United States? Because I know you received your master's degree, which I want to talk a little bit about. You received one of your master's degrees from Notre Dame. So how many more years passed before you came back to the U.S.?
1: I came back again for another exchange uh, through... I. I'm- I did a university, uh, both undergrad and graduate in the in Czech Republic at Palacký University, majoring in political science uh, and international relations. And as part of that, I spent one semester uh, in the UK, uh, but also one entire academic year at Miami University in Ohio. So I came back, that was 1999, 2000. So when I was uh, 20, if I count correctly. Uh and then uh I did my master's indeed after I finished the Czech Masters. Um uh I went for MA in peace studies and conflict resolution at the Kroc Institute, which was 2003 and uh 2004. Uh so I in total I spent four years of my life and uh, studying in the US. So how did you
0: how did you find Notre Dame? How did you choose Notre Dame? How did and now, looking back, how has Notre Dame impacted what you know your life and what you're doing from a career standpoint?
1: Notre Dame uh, was sort of my pick, primarily because of the Crokin Institute. Crokin uh, Institute back then certainly and arguably till today is one of the top schools or institutes to go to if you want to study peace studies uh, and conflict resolution. Uh, and um, My initial idea after I graduated from the Czech uh, university was that this should help me to land in a career uh, in peace world. Uh, The dream sort of back at the time was that I would work for a UN peacekeeping mission. Uh, Things have changed a bit because before I got the scholarship at uh, Notre Dame from Kroc Institute, uh, I had to wait for one year and I started a PhD back in Czech Republic and I actually found out that I very much into research and teaching. Uh, so I like to say that I'm saving the peacekeeping mission career till my retirement, and I ended up in the academia. Uh, yeah, but the initial plan was oh, go to Notre Dame. Uh, they had, back then, one year MA uh, for uh, for peace studies. Um, they tried to combine both sort of the teaching, but also practice. It's one of the trademarks of the Kroc Institute that they have lots of what they call scholars and practitioners, people who are actually doing in the field mediation, negotiation, and peace building activities. Uh, and yeah, uh, it was a great experience. Uh, things worked out a little differently in terms of my career that I stayed in the academia, but uh, I still teach a course, for example, on peacekeeping, on conflict resolution. So it certainly was uh, was something that uh, pays off even in my academic career.
0: So you, you were at the crock Institute at Notre Dame, and then went back to the Czech Republic. And at that point, you finished your doctorate, your doctoral?
1: Yes, I started one year before I came to Notre Dame. Uh, In in Europe in general, the PhD system is a bit different if you're a master's and then you only go for three, maximum four years of uh, basically thesis writing. Uh, That's a bit different than the uh, PhD uh, studies in the US where you usually start right after your BA degree. Uh, so I spent, in the end, two years at the Kroc Institute because uh, I got a Fulbright scholarship. Uh, so I finished EMA and then I continued for another year at the Kroc Institute uh, as so-called academic intern. Uh, so I was basically a research assistant for uh, for George Lopez and Gerwig Cartwright, Cortright, um, two professors uh, from Notre Dame who just started the project uh, looking at what international organizations do. Uh, in the fight against terrorism. This was shortly after 9-11, so terrorism and counterterrorism were big topics. Uh, Most uh, scholars have focused at the national level or uh, at national security agencies, and this was one of the first projects to look uh, at the international organizations level. And I was the only European around, so they asked me to look at the European Union and what the European Union does in the fight against terrorism. And that, again, Uh, this that's a small coincidence, uh, from look at and I started one of the major tracks, research tracks of my career. I wrote my first book on the counterterrorism policy and it has ever since been sort of one of the two major likes of my research, uh, of my research career.
0: And, and on that research, you know, you, you just mentioned career. I want to talk about that a little bit. So you go back to the Czech Republic, received your PhD and then At that point, did you start to teach and continue to do research?
1: Yes. uh, I I started right off uh, in Czech Republic or again in Europe. It's quite common that after you finish your PhD, if you're a good, successful, promising PhD student, uh, you are offered a job uh, at the university where you finish the PhD or at some other university uh, in the Czech Republic. Um, This has both pluses and minuses. But the good thing is that you can basically continue right away if you indeed enjoy teaching and research, uh, which I did. Uh, so I finished my PhD, stayed at the university where I earned the PhD. Uh, I stayed for two more years, and then I moved uh, from Olmo, which is a uh, local town or regional town in Czech Republic, to the capital Prague, uh, to recently founded a private university. That's also one of the sort of things which are a bit different over here in a post-communist country then uh, at the less that private universities are still a research mention. So I took a bit of a leap of faith and went to a relatively new university where I have been ever since 2007, so for 15 years now. And I have been always teaching and doing research. I like the combination, uh, that, uh, you have both the opportunity to research uh, things, uh, and then use some of the findings from your research as part of our teaching portfolio.
0: So can you share with our listeners, you know, currently what type of research are you doing? And and is it anything that's going to be applicable to us? You know, generally, you know, our our listenership is 90, 95% um, U.S. based.
1: Yeah. So my two major areas of focus are the fight against terrorism. Primarily I focus at what the European Union, supranational organization that, uh, basically tries to assist, support, uh, the, uh, European countries, uh, including Czech Republic in various areas of activity, um, at least in the 20, 30 past years, that includes, uh, security challenges, uh, including the fight against terrorism. Uh, so basically how, and why, uh, are we taking this, uh, supranational Approach, what is the value added uh, of the European Union uh, in the fight against terrorism? Uh, my second major area of research is privatization of security, uh, which the US actually has quite a bit of experience with, uh, both in positive and negative ways. So, private military and security companies and their impact uh, on the provision of security. Uh, so, this is actually something that I again picked up uh, at Notre Dame. Uh, as part of my peace studies. This was right uh, at the beginning or around the time when uh, the U.S. intervention in Iraq has happened. and uh, this was largely based on the manpower provided by different private military and security companies. So one of the chapters of my PhD thesis was uh, whether these companies are an alternative uh, in terms of provision of certain services uh, to U.S. steeping operations. And again, I kept researching this uh, ever since. To me,
0: th- this kind of leads to part two of a, a conversation I'd love to have with you in a year um, because I, I still want to understand no more you personally, but it's very intriguing. And I'd like to understand, and I think our listeners would like to understand. So go back to your time at Notre Dame and the Croc Institute with the whole conflict resolution and now you mm-hmm. know, heavily involved in, in researching terrorism. How did that, the learnings that you had from the Croc Institute influence you today?
1: Uh, it gave me a really great, uh, I would say, basis uh, in terms of um, both the conflict resolution literature, but also always the appreciation that there is always this practitioner side. Uh, I already mentioned this. clock uh, has kind of a trademark inviting people back in my days. This was, for example, John Paul Lederach, uh, who has done lots of both practitioners' activities all over the world, Latin America, especially in terms of uh, helping societies uh, to rebuild from different types of conflicts and what kinds of challenges does it have. And in many of these countries, uh, uh, terrorism has been there long before nine eleven. 11 So while it be less, this has been something of a shock. Uh, also in Europe, many countries have decades, uh, long histories uh, of terrorism. Uh, and many of the responses, I would argue, uh, to conflicts uh, are... Uh, very useful in terms of understanding at least the potential responses uh, to terrorism. The other thing which was really an eye-opener was that uh, back then, uh, and this is unfortunately from my perspective no longer the case if I understand the development of the Kraut Institute, uh, but back then uh, they had something that they called the Peace Hubs. Uh, so basically all of us VMA students lived under one roof, a um, couple of uh, uh, short walking distance from the campus. And this was really another part of the learning experience to basically talk to people, usually they were from the conflict areas, about their own personal experiences, what it takes to live there, uh, what are the possibilities of actually solving the conflicts and what challenges does it bring at the bottom-up level, Uh, So, really the local societies. And this is what I feel is still Quite often neglected, especially in terrorism or in security studies research, uh, which is the more popular uh, aspect of studies and research in Europe. Uh, it's I would say the opposite side of peace studies, which has always been interested in the so-called positive thing: what is the peace? Right. Uh, so we have a great tradition here to study the war, uh, and I think that's 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 a problem or part of the challenge. that if you take the other approach that peace studies takes and also the bottom up perspective, uh, you can see many different things that have been neglected in the traditional European centric security study.
0: So if you look back on, on you know, your early years, you, you grew up, you know, it was formative years in a communist country, went through a tremendous change in the late eighties, early nineties. And, you know, you fast forward to today Um, Can you share with us any core principles that you've learned so far in your life that have really kind of helped you and kind of formulate the direction for you?
1: I would say the key part, the key thing for me was for uh, for sure be open to new challenges and new opportunities, Uh, especially back in the 1990s or in the middle of the 1990s. Uh, When the opportunity came up uh, for this one-year exchange uh, uh, at the high school in the US, this was still something that uh, many of my classmates could not imagine. Uh, My parents also initially felt that, yes, feel free to try, will probably never be selected, Uh, and then they were shocked, stunned, uh, and that initially my mom wouldn't let me go almost. Uh, for this exchange here because, yes, this was uh, something that uh, was difficult to imagine. And also, especially for my parents' generation, that the US for 45 years was portrayed as the enemy, or even if you want, as the evil empire. Uh, And uh, the sort of idea that uh, five years uh, from when was the last time that they heard uh, similar stories, or we can call it now propaganda, Uh, I should go or their son from the perspective of my parents should go and study in the US. This was a bit, let's say, far-fetched for many people. But uh, it was, again, a life changer. And uh, Mm -hmm. if I didn't take the opportunity, uh, I can openly say my life uh, would be very different uh, in many different ways. Uh, But yeah, uh, looking back at years, uh, knowing now how difficult it was the initial months uh, at the boarding school where everything was different with far less uh, ideal, far less than ideal English, uh, English capabilities and language skills. It was challenging. So uh, yes, so be open to the challenges uh, and don't be scared to take them.
0: So what would you tell a 21 year old
1: oldrich today,
0: knowing what you know now?
1: Knowing what I know now uh, it would add to that uh, take down even more uh, or as much as you can them these challenges I'm really flies by uh mm-hmm. so I was uh, I received some of the questions that we are discussing today and I must say this one was uh, the one that I was most puzzled about what would I say to myself uh that here is yonder? uh so yeah the the only thing that I could come by is really uh, flies by. Uh, take every opportunity that you have. Uh, sometimes I don't know whether it's a Czech saying or an English saying, whatever doesn't kill you actually uh, makes you stronger. So that I think would be uh, the message that I would have.
0: So so far in your life, you've had some tremendous experiences. I mean, from, as I recently mentioned, how you grew up coming to the States for school, what you're doing now from a research perspective. But what do you think it takes to be successful in life?
1: Well, in addition to taking the opportunities, which sometimes come up by sheer luck or at random, so being ready to take them, uh, uh, one other lesson, I guess, would be uh, over time, uh, basically learning that uh, there are no silver bullets. Uh, So there are many different things how you can go about taking the challenges and also the challenges sometimes, of course, need to... Problems, issues, not everything always going well and learning that, yeah, there are many different ways how we can go about issues, but also dealing with people and that different people can sometimes have really very different ideas uh, about how to solve problems or the next steps or responses to various kind of challenges. I think that's the key part uh, to realize that really there are not necessarily triple bullets to anything and be open. Uh, especially to the idea that uh, people from different cultures, backgrounds and life experiences may see the exact same things, uh, from a really different and That's sometimes very challenging, uh, again, I think it's perhaps even more of a challenge from somebody who comes from a small country from the middle of Europe, uh, which is very ethnically homogeneous or a key like thought recently has been. And then you travel to a country like the U S or, uh, it's, it's literally a melting pot. Uh, so that has I think been also one of the big lessons in the US but beyond the US. And then I guess in terms of the challenge in the long run, it's also not to fall into the into a routine. Uh, which I think is very dangerous, especially if you land in three years no matter where, but if you are there for 10, 15 years it's it's very easy to I know do things uh, in the same way, because that's how we've been doing them in the past 10 and 15 years. And they may have worked, but uh, it's uh, it's it's holding you back uh, unless you seek again some other new challenges. So I would say that's the, the big danger to fall into a routine. Perfect.
0: Thank you. Hey, I, I want to switch gears and I want to talk a little bit about leadership with you. Can you name a person or if it's multiple people, that's great. Who had a tremendous impact on you as a leader, and kind of the second part of that is, how did that person impact your life?
1: I have to say, I was very fortunate to meet several people who really impacted uh, my life, uh, uh, and hopefully uh, gave me enough skills to be a book leader. I'm still kind of struggling with uh, the idea that I am a leader. I'm. I'm the academia, I'm a full professor now and I'm in charge of a center for security studies, Um, but I still mostly like to think of myself as a scholar and researcher rather than a leader. So uh, my insights will be more about what really helped me and pushed me or started me off with my educational or later academic and research career. The first person I already named, this was uh, Elizabeth Eisenbrot, my high school English teacher. An old lady from Massachusetts who, for the, for the first time from somebody out in the Czech Republic, uh, opened the view to the possibility that the educational doesn't have to be just memorizing what's in the books and what the professor or the teacher tells you, but that you can actually read, write and think for yourself. Uh, and this may sound very obvious to people who went through the U.S. educational system, but in many different parts of the world, these are the skills on uh, the type of education that people still today uh, do not get. Uh, so that was uh, first major person that impacted me. Uh, then at the university studies, there were several professors. Uh, I will just name uh, or two uh, from Notre Dame. Uh, George Lopez, uh, professor of uh, conflict resolution from the Proc Institute, now Professor Emeritus, but uh, a great guy who both... Uh, I gave us a number of great courses, but I also had the pleasure to work with him for this counter tourism project at my second year uh, of, uh, of my stay at, at the Kroc Institute. And uh, George is, uh, I would say, a great motivator uh, to graduate students, or uh, to get them engaged uh, very passionately with what you study, research, and what you work for, and also perhaps uh, how you sell that. Uh, both uh, in the academia and uh, beyond the academia. So the importance not to stay the ivory towers uh, of the academia. Uh, And the second uh, professor, I would say that at least, hopefully you will not mind if he ever hears this, but the toughest (laughs) professor from the Kroc Institute, Bob Johansson, who really was very strict, very tough, but at the same time really taught us such a great deal. Uh, about uh, his studies, uh, and uh, I really learned a lot from his from him, especially when it comes to teaching uh, and how to deal with students, how to be a tough professor, but at the same time be an engaging professor, and that's that's very difficult. Uh, students sometimes like uh, I think professors who take it a bit easier, or make it easy for them, uh, and it's it's a bit challenging. Uh, if you want to get the most out of them uh be I would say tough but both engaging and uh motivating uh, and Bob Johnson, in the way he has done this was a great inspiration for me perfect thank you and and don't be hard on yourself
0: because I've only spoken to you for twenty twenty five minutes and yes you are a true leader very, very very much so um you know the the flip side of that is that you know when you look back, you know what mistakes have you made that further helped you become who you are today?
1: That was another question, which was, uh, well, I would say, tough. I think one of them I already mentioned and this, uh, that many different parts of my career, the assumption that I can somehow discover the silver bullets, how to teach, how to do research. And then uh, the more you progress in the academia, it's expected that you create your own research teams or something that I have really struggled. Uh, to mentor the younger generation. And that might be also something that's again unique uh, to my generation uh, in post-communist countries that uh, at the university level in political science and in international relations, we have a big of a generation gap. Uh, so the older professors, they basically, when they were teaching political science, they would be essentially teaching Marxism, Leninism, or if you want, communism. Uh, and this is not uh, what much of the world considered to be political science, uh, but ideology, uh, and because of this gap, well, at least before I went to Notre Dame or abroad, I really didn't have uh, much uh, of inspiration of how are you supposed to mentor uh, younger colleagues. Uh, and even at Notre Dame, I was a graduate student, so yes, I learned how to man- how to be a good researcher and hopefully how to be a good professor, but. What I'm still struggling to today because I don't really necessarily have to, under role models uh, in the Czech Republic is how to be now the mentor of the sort of mid-career uh to the younger generation of early uh early career scholars. And they already expect that it's kind of the normal deal, but I'm still traveling out to do it on the cross side never had uh, that experience, unfortunately myself. So it's a lot of learning by doing. Uh and this generational gap, uh, I wish we would be here.
0: So do you enjoy that, Ulrich, which kind of leads to a question that you know, I, I gave you prior to? I mean, what do you do to ensure that you continue to grow, to learn, to lead?
1: Uh, I try to stay connected uh, and move beyond, I would say, the borders of the Czech academia. It's a relatively small pond, uh, so this falling into the routine or... So having the feeling that, uh, as I think it was, uh, Professor George Lopez actually once told me that you are a big fish in a small pond, and that's very easy in such a small country as uh, as Czech Republic, and that's part of the danger. So, uh, continuing to nurture and develop more contacts outside of the Czech Republic, keeping in touch also from professors uh, from Notre Dame, uh, but yes, it's it's a bit of a challenge uh, because uh, I'm now in my mid forties and. Uh, basically, I'm the senior professor of, uh, in international relations uh, at my university, which I believe shouldn't be the case. Uh, so the only way I know how I can deal with is uh, keep going abroad, uh, going for sabbaticals, uh, research projects with people uh, who are fortunate enough uh, to be more senior or more senior colleagues uh, outside of Czech Republic. And then, yes, uh, again, sort of be open and with uh, In the academic career, it sounds relatively easy to go abroad, but then it's probably another thing we may be talking about later. Uh, once you have your own family, uh, it's not that easy to balance uh, the career, the academia and research on uh, what your children' educational and your wife's um, professional needs may be. So you just mentioned family and
0: kind of like that that other part. We've certainly talked uh, very much in depth about your career and your path, but tell us a little bit about your family and and how do you? Uh, I struggle with the word balance, but but how do the how does family and your career coexist for you?
1: Oh, I'm very fortunate that uh, I have uh, a wife, I'm going to who I love. We have to also explain to make the balance, which is certainly not the balance work. Uh, so, um, uh, she certainly, uh, spent much more time with our kid, with without two children, uh, who are still relatively young, uh, 10 and 12, uh, and especially when they were younger, much of the burden, uh, was, on uh, of my wife and that allowed me actually to, uh, continue with my career and progress relatively early on to an associate professor and full professor and all of that. So. I'm extremely fortunate, I'm extremely grateful. Uh, and yes, uh, it's it's a major challenge. Um, I don't think again there is some advice so I can say I was lucky to marry my wife. And
0: now I want to talk a little bit a little bit about the IBC, which is really the core of our audience. and the IBC is the Alumni Association of the SIBC, the Student International Business Council. And our mission, the IBC mission, is to create a world where the business community acts as a principled force for the common good globally. And I I wanted to get your thought on our mission. And I think your perspective is going to be very interesting in that, you know, we talk about the global view. You're certainly much more global than we are. We're very U.S. centric, but also having now the influence from the Kroc Institute as well as all the research. So if, if you could comment on that.
1: Yeah, certainly. I, to me, that's uh, actually very interesting because, as I already mentioned, my other track of research is the privatization of security. Uh, and there, initially, lots of the attention was primarily uh, paid to private military and security companies. But the more reasonable list of the research is to look at what uh, people, for the lack of a better word, call uh, the regular private businesses and how they increasingly engage in the provision of security. Uh, from the fight against terrorist financing, but also in lots of conflict areas, uh, having some role to play in rebuilding the societies. Uh, so that's one aspect where sort of this resonated, but the second one, and that may be probably even more interesting uh, for people coming from the US, would be perhaps the central or post uh perspective. Uh, where Uh, Sort of the businesses were not really expected to play, if you want, the common good. The common good was supposed to come from the state, uh, which was kind of the idea from the cradle to the grave and uh, the state will take care of you. Uh, I know in the US, this is not what most people kind of would expect, uh, especially from the federal government. Uh, but, uh, if you would try to build something like the IBC and share the mission that you have, um, that the businesses should do a common good, uh, over here in, especially in central and Eastern Europe, uh, with many businesses, I would say even 10, 15 years, uh, that would not resonate at all. So it's, uh, it's still something that's, uh, I would say the learning curve over here, uh, and, uh, I wish we had more, or at least one or two IPCs uh, over here. So if you ever want to expand uh, inner presence, I know that's difficult because it's an outline association that uh, somehow expand your mission uh, to Central Europe. I think that would still be hugely beneficial.
0: Well, that's refreshing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You know, another kind of a a reflection question for you. If you had the, the chance today to talk to a group of 22, 23-year-old young adults, and and they have this strong desire to make uh, an impact in the world, but don't know where to start, what would you tell them?
1: I would tell them what I already said. I would say to myself 20 years ago, explore and seek every opportunity uh, that counts uh, to do something that's sort of out, perhaps of the normal or... Uh, Something that most of your uh, classmates uh, or peers would not necessarily be thinking about. Uh, Sometimes that may be scary. Uh, I certainly recommend uh, to all students uh, always, uh, regardless of whether it's high school or university, especially to take the opportunity and study abroad. Uh, You learn so much about yourself uh, your own country, uh, uh, by doing this, um, by being precisely challenged being out of the comfort zone. Uh, and uh, I only really, I would say learned about what it means for me, uh, to be Czech coming from Europe, uh, when I was in the US. and it's difficult to explain why this is the case, but, uh, really going outside of your comfort zone, especially in a foreign country and not visiting, not as a tourist, but spending there, I would say at least six months or a year, uh, it's the greatest thing that you can do for yourself, if you are a 20-year-old, but maybe even a 15-year-old.
0: Excellent. So what do you think it takes to have a great, meaningful life?
1: That's another tough one. Uh, I guess at this point, I would say it's something that we already touched, and this is whatever that means the life, word balance, uh, so somehow managing your career, the family... Uh, but also, the older you get, uh, I would say your uh, physical uh, and potentially also mental well-being. Uh, there is a danger, I would say, uh game if you stand uh, or fall into these routines of burnouts. Uh, so, how to stay motivated, doing well what you are doing. No matter what the career actually is. Uh, and sometimes the baby coming earlier, I guess these days, uh, than perhaps a couple of generations ago. Uh, simply because things are getting, I would say, ever smaller and ever faster. So to keep up with all of these different things, I think it's becoming increasingly challenging. And I don't have any good solution to that. I think the cornerstone to that is really having a good basis uh, in your family, uh, in your friends, and then also having a few things beyond your family and uh, your career. So uh, in terms of your physical and well-being, it's good, of course, to do some sport, but have some passion beyond your career, and that can be helping your local society or uh, go, uh, or doing what you are doing with IPC, when uh, they say cricket, uh something uh, beyond your career and beyond your family What are you most proud
0: of in your life so far?
1: What I'm most proud of, uh, certainly of my two kids, uh, so that's both proudness and joy. Uh, I would probably put that at the top uh, and then hopefully being able to still be a good professor. I really enjoy sort of the interaction uh, with the new generation of students and see also how the students change over time and by them asking lots of difficult questions if they keep pushing me. So I'm proud of that I've able to do that, to be pushed through that so
0: you read a lot you do a lot of research are there any books or a a book that you could recommend to our listeners that possibly you've recently read that we'd find very intriguing
1: very bad with book recommendations because my book recommendations come from my course syllabi and from my research so these are very academic books that i wouldn't recommend to anybody (laughs) the same research interests uh, but there is one which I would recommend to anybody who would like to understand uh, perhaps uh, the post-communist or even perhaps the peculiar Central European and Czech mentality. This is a great book written already in the uh, 1920s. Uh, it's called The Good Soldier Schweik. It's a thick book. It has four volumes, but I think it's still the best volume or the best story how to understand uh, the Central European mentality. So. If anybody wants to understand what what has been going on in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, sort of from the local perspective, uh, this is the book that I would certainly recommend to you. And the title of it again is? It's Good Soldier, Schweik." Schweik is the name of the soldier. Uh, It was written by Jaroslav Hasek, a Czech writer in 1921, I believe. And it has been translated into more than 60 languages, including English. So it's possible to get in lots of different...
0: And which my, my final question for you. If you could change one thing in the world, what would you do?
1: That one I was also thinking quite a bit uh, and uh, ultimately I would say make sure everybody has a chance uh, to get good education. Uh, and by that I mean basically to learn how to think, uh, write, analyze and express yourself really. Uh, in a meaningful way, uh, which uh, is not what many people earn around the world, not to mention that unfortunately many people don't have luxury to attend any school. So good education for all that would be what I would do if I had the power. Well, well, thank you
0: very much. I truly appreciate the time you spent with us today. I think our listeners will also truly enjoy this conversation. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, I want to circle back maybe in a year or so and have part two and delve a little bit more deeply into the whole security ter- terrorism aspect to get more insight of that from you. But thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening today to Continuum, the IBC's podcast series. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. And for more information about the IBC, visit our website, at our ibc.com that's just o u r com. thanks